0: That God holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you was suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you hain't gone to hell, since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell. Jonathan Edwards welcome everyone this is a word fitly spoken i'm willie grills here with and heidi and we know you're all excited after that very uplifting introduction
1: and <laughs> how are you i'm doing well all things considered you know since i haven't dropped into the pit just as of yet but
0: not yet but not yet before <laughs> we finish recording it may well
1: happen no i Things are going well here, and uh, the weather is quite nice and enjoying getting settled in here and really starting to get into some real grooves for things. So, no, everything's good. How about you, Willie? Good.
0: Uh, going well. Weather has been rather mild. Not a whole lot of winter weather. I don't know if we're going to get winter this year, knock on wood. So we shall see. You know, weather, I'm assuming, is nice and, and uh, brisk up your way i i don't understand how you can't have winter that just that just doesn't make any sense to me so we have had a couple you know just mild snows that's been that's been about it it must be all the aerosol cans that i spray into the atmosphere every morning just to make sure that it stays warm
1: you're doing your personal part to encourage global warming so
0: that's right (laughs) hey if every place is florida bring in those tourism dollars am i right exactly exactly (laughs) and so speaking of fire we've come here today to talk about the first great awakening it's one we've talked about doing for a while if you remember way back when we did the second great awakening and it's not really putting the cart before the horse here because while they are somewhat related they really are of a different character in a lot of ways you have some extremes to be certain but everything that happens within the Second Great Awakening is still largely within established denominations, which gives it kind of a different uh, feel than the Second Great Awakening, which was, in large part, as far as the long-standing effects, it, it created a lot of new denominations, a lot more splits, even than what we see in the First Great Awakening, and even new religions in the case of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. What you see in the First Great Awakening is a great debate among the historic Protestant denominations in America and in Britain. And so it's a very interesting subject for us and very important for our audience, which is predominantly American. Of course, that's not to take away from our international listeners. We appreciate you and we'll get to more international history soon. We promise. (laughs) But Zoan, why do you think it's important to talk about this?
1: Well, I think when you're dealing with a question of like the first great awakening, even beyond American borders, you're going to have a tremendous influence on the direction of Christianity across the board. I I really do think that's the case because the fact that we have, you know, major figures such as John Wesley coming out of this, we have uh, George Whitefield, Jonathan Edwards, These are not characters who just had a minor splash within the colonies or something like that. These are men who have shaped in a very large degree. And the first great awakening has shaped in a very large degree, the direction of Christianity, even going out into the world. I mean, I mean, even if you think of it in terms just of Methodism, which would be coming, you know, from Wesley, that's Mm -hmm. something that has a global impact. So, I don't think we can discount the importance of this movement. And yeah, I mean, it is something worth talking about, certainly.
0: So let's set the stage then. We are talking about the, well, what would become the United States, the colonies in the 1730s is really the beginnings. And then this this movement stretches into about the mid-1750s. So that's what we're talking about, the colonial period in what would become the United States. I'm just going to say America, uh, just to keep it clear that we know what we're talking exactly. about. Exactly, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it, the First Great Awakening does affect England, but it's predominantly an American movement, although greatly influenced by Englishmen. But, hey, it's one, one nation at that time, I suppose. So that makes sense. So this is really the, the beginning of what we'll call the evangelical movement. And this is, you know, Anglo-Americans who are very much about evangelization and evangelical movements within the established denominations. Now, when we think evangelicalism, we think of kind of the modern form of it, which may well find its roots in the First Great Awakening, but it looks a little bit different too. You think that's, you think that's fair? Yeah, I do because especially since uh, modern evangelicalism has
1: also been deeply influenced by the second Great Awakening. I think if we're gonna call if we're gonna find its roots in the first one, it definitely passes through the filter of the second one. So we don't mm-hmm. want to just skip over the later awakening as if it didn't happen and say this is why things are the way they are today. I mean, that's that's just not good history. But I do think that there is a good predominant start of this movement here in, in this time period.
0: Yes. Yeah, certainly. So let's look at some of the precursor movements leading toward this. So the first and most significant is going to be something like Puritanism. Right. Which would be a desire from within the Church of England to purify the Church as, as much as one can. That That Cromwell feel, though. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Ask Charles how he feels, right? Yeah, exactly. uh, (laughs) Or Ireland. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) we're going to do a whole episode on that eventually, too, I think, the English Civil War. But for now, we have the Puritans seeking to purify the church, both externally, of course, but also internally. And this internal struggle is really going to be what the First Great Awakening is about, an inner renewal which is where we automatically get a little bit nervous because that makes a lot of Lutherans think about what, Zellin?
1: Well, the boogeyman, right? Pietism. The pietism, <laughs>
0: yeah. Does the does the Radloof check under his bed for the Pietism monster before he goes to sleep at night?
1: Puts a little bit of alcohol in his sippy cup to make sure that you know, yeah, he doesn't he turn his, into one.
0: He gets his quote-unquote father in the faith to check his closet for Pietist monsters before he can... <laughs> <laughs> Before he can sleep well. And why why do we why do we talk about Pietism as a boogeyman though, Zelwin? For those of for those who may not begin on the joke. Well, I mean, because
1: Pietism is often used as a way of describing everything that we don't like within modern day Lutheranism. We kind of say that in one way or another it goes back to Pietism or is some sort of incursion of Calvinism, which is really what Pietism is. I mean, it's just this, it's just this. Using this kind of boogeyman, as it were, to just explain away all of our problems and then think that we have solved the problem, I think is the best way of doing it. It's not really treating the historical movement fairly, in my opinion, but it's an easy way to make an
0: argument. And why might pietism, properly understood, have, have had something of an influence on this movement? Well, I mean, if you're
1: going through like Puritanism and pietism, I mean, they're Puritanism comes a little bit before, but it has a heavy impact upon Pietism, and Pietism also had a reciprocal impact upon um, Puritanism, and they are, you know, they're kind of moving. I mean, just like every denomination in those days. But then, of course, you have some direct Pietist groups influencing major figures, like when we talk about Wesley later in the the podcast here and his experience with the Moravians. The Moravians, of course, being a Pietistic group. So there's all of this influence and kind of mutual influence that's going on that kind of shapes the whole time period so that it's not easy to just separate them out into little groups.
0: Right. And so what you're going to have then are men who are going to stress internal conversion, right? internal renewal, and extemporaneous preaching. Preaching is really going to be emphasized over and really over and against, to be to be quite honest. A, a more sacramental understanding of salvation, and what this is going to do is, these evangelical—and again, I'm using it in, in its historic context here—this evangelical spirit will then transcend a lot of denominational boundaries in the First Great Awakening. So, and and the denominations we're predominantly dealing with at this time period within the First Great Awakening are the Church of England, right? So the Anglicans the Congregationalists, and the Presbyterians. There are others, of course. The Methodists are going to come, but they're more of an offshoot from the Anglicans, so they're still very much Anglican at this time. And then the Baptists. But again, it's to a lesser degree. Now, there's a little bit, though, of of what happens in the First Great Awakening is they kind of sort of retroactively interpret this evangelical spirit to an earlier time. Right. So the puritans and the baptists didn't necessarily get along in their time. Right. And so but but then what you what what develops is this idea that they were all of the same spirit, say Pres, puritans or puritanical presbyterians and baptists and so so we all kind of lump even baptists under puritans, right? Right. And say and say they had this this idea as if they all got along and weren't like we weren't imprison, imprisoning Baptists in England in, <laughs> you know at, at the time. So I, I think it really is the First Great Awakening that causes these groups to get along in a way they wouldn't. And so now today we really synthesize groups historically that uh, that would have been at odds. So you'll have something like Banner of Truth publishing Puritan books, and now Puritan is this large umbrella which covers everyone from William Perkins, to John Bunyan, even though they would have kind of been at odds in many ways during their time.
1: Yeah, Bunyan, of course, would probably disagree with you from his prison cell. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Although Baxter might, you know, want everybody to just get along, but that's getting kind of far
0: afield. So. That's right, and yeah, so we're, we're getting down in the weeds <laughs> a little bit. So there, there is though something of a of a of a movement toward unity in a way, at least a unity of spirit. There's not a huge call to tear things down, as far as denominational boundaries go. They're calling for revival from within, in large part. And and so that, that makes it a little bit different from some of the stuff that you see in the Second Great Awakening. Not all, but some of it. So what is the religious state of America at the beginning of the First Great Awakening?
1: Of America in particular, or just of the colonies in England in general. I mean, what, what, what do we want to focus?
0: Well, I mean, we're not going to talk about Indians, but let's say like, <laughs> let's say the Anglophone world between the colonies. Fair and enough. Britain, Fair enough. What's going on?
1: Well, I mean, you're dealing with the, the kind of indifference that has really stemmed from the, the conflicts of the, the previous century going on. Cause you know, in the post-reformation period, you've had all kinds of wars going on, especially over, at least fueled by religious questions, if it's not particularly religious questions. And so people have become sort of just complacent, more than anything. And it doesn't help that the the clergy have been closely connected with the state in many cases, especially in England, where, you know, you receive... Well, I mean, you have parliament setting religious policies and stuff like that, and the clergy have become a largely noble kind of class. And so there's this, I don't know, I don't know if you want to use the the old pietistic slogans and call it a deadness in spirituality, but there is certainly a sluggishness, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, and I do think that that's probably a fair critique of the religious environment at the time so i think that the diagnosis of these revivalists is going to be somewhat uh correct sure. we could disagree maybe on the remedy <laughs> but i think that i think the diagnosis is there that people have basically come up with the idea that you're part of the established church and that could change depending upon which colony right. you're in uh and so all that being said you've you've got you've got your checklist here of church things you need to do to die well and if you check off the box, get your sacraments, get this, that, and the other, you're good. The question of faith kind of pushed aside. And what what would an example of, of some of the typical preaching of the time look like? Well, there's a very interesting
1: tidbit that's given to us from a man named Jonathan Swift. We, readers may be familiar with him from his more famous writings, such as A Modest Proposal or Gulliver's Travels, but he wrote a a kind of a critiquing letter, which he calls a letter to a young clergyman, in which he describes and kind of deplores the, the, com- the common preaching that was going on in that day, in which preachers, for example, were trying to present themselves as learned more than anything, as just being educated. And so they would uh, preach sermons which were largely unintelligible to the common man, but were supposed to be impressive, like rhetorically or, you know, using high sounding phrases and that sort of thing. And also a critique was that uh, many preachers also just simply read their sermons, like line for line, word for word, never looking up from a page. And in fact, uh, Swift has this very uh, hilarious kind of image of this parson who is so engrossed in his manuscript that he has his nose, as Swift says, an inch from the cushion, never looking up, never wavering. And and you can imagine what that would have done for his projection too. So this idea that they were more the clergy was more interested in that being noble or being seen as noble or educated rather than preaching to in a way that was intelligible and and that would reach souls.
0: Is that a fair a fair yeah, I I think it is, and I think any generation can run the risk of falling into that kind of idea. Either you know, we simply want to appear learned from the pulpit or we want to impress people with our vocabulary or what's becoming more and more common in our day, we want to impress people who are nowhere near our pews, right? And and you know, perhaps that's our that's our great temptation today is to try to, to impress an audience, say, sitting on the other side of a keyboard uh, with your online sermon. And we can fall into that quickly. Well, my sermon hit these points that I'm supposed to say every sermon, so it's good. And, you know, it, our <laughs> sermons become like the prayer scene in Talladega Nights or something. <laughs> and, so, and so that's not what we're not what we're after.
1: Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess you could call it, I mean, I I think the the best way to put it in modern terms is virtue signaling, of course, this idea that you're just trying to impress a certain group by what you say. And that was certainly happening in Swift's day and in the time of the First Great Awakening. And so there was a call frequently to improve preaching for that very reason.
0: Yeah, and there is a bit of careerism happening at the time. The church has never been free of that. Uh, There there were plenty of hirelings in those days, to use a word that we like to use a lot in Lutheranism. You know, there's nothing new under the sun in that regard. But there is a growing movement of clergymen who are against this type of approach to a sermon, and they begin to see a necessity, an urgency that is needful in preaching, that you need to preach as if these men really are in spiritual danger. You need to preach the word in such a way that they will be awoken to their sinful state and hopefully, by God's grace, come to a a realization of of their sin and come to actual faith and, and repentance. And this is going to be the interesting thing as we begin our discussion. I know we have to go to break here, but remember that by and large, with the exception of Wesley, the great preachers of the great revivals in England and in America are, are Calvinists. Right. And so they don't believe in an Arminian view of salvation whereby man must make a decision. Yet they do believe that a man must be convicted of his sins, must actually feel it, and, and must come to terms with that. And it's that feeling thing that might make some of us out there a little bit nervous. Right, (laughs) Zola?
1: Because we are like blocks or stones? I'm not sure. No, I I know. I'm just teasing.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, hey, we're coming up on the first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Word Fitly, Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi here talking the First Great Awakening. So, Zelwyn, where do we go from here? Well, I think if we're going to
1: understand the First Great Awakening in some detail, we should probably start talking about some of the major events, because I think once we have the major contours down, then we can actually talk about the individuals in more detail. So, why don't you tell us about some of the early revivals that were going on and and what those, why they came about and what they were and so on and so forth.
0: Certainly. I'm going to give kind of broad strokes here just to give us an idea of what the colonies are like at the time with regard to religion. The 13 colonies have diverse religions, right? So in New England, we've got the Congregationalists. Uh, they're, They're established very well the Middle Colonies with the Quakers and the Dutch Reformed. You have Anglicans, Presbyterians, Lutherans, and Baptists are all kind of competing with each other in what we'll say are the Middle Colonies. To some degree in New England, yes, but I kind of like to think of New England, at least at that time, as, as really largely belonging to the Congregationalists, although it's not quite that simple. So we'll say New England, Middle Colonies, you've got Congregationalists, Quakers, Reformed, Anglicans, Presby's, and Lutherans are hanging around there too with some Baptists. Now, in the southern colonies, the Anglican Church is basically the official uh, established religion. Although there are many Presbyterians down there, they are significant. As, and there are also Baptists and Quakers. And this is something that we need to understand as we talk about American religion. And we hear this all the time, Anglo-religion. Or Anglos say, or Anglos do this. That's what these the really popular missions gurus say, as if there's one monolithic Anglo, <laughs> right? So you do have the, the Anglo-Puritanism heavily influencing New England, but you also have Scots-Irish Presbyterianism heavily influencing uh, the culture where it settles. These cultures are different. There are varieties within the Anglo-sphere, if you will. And do we, I mean, and if we really want to, we can start parsing it down between the Celts and other things, right? But uh, we're not going to do that. Now, what do they all have in common, though? Well, there's a huge population increase in the colonies at this time. And religious membership is really not keeping up with the growth of the population. Enlightenment rationalism at the same time is coming up. And so people are turning to deism or Unitarianism. Or universalism, which a lot of people seem to be flirting with today. Before we we get too far, though, Willie, just to
1: be clear, is this population increase, is this uh, because of a, a population boom, or is this mostly immigration?
0: It's mostly immigration, but at this time, people are beginning to settle and reproduce. So we're far away from Jamestown. And right. then those early days. So you're getting both. But immigration is still uh, the biggest part of this. Okay. But now you have communities established, which is why you can have these pockets that we can call Scots-Irish or Cornish or English. Right? Cornish come maybe a little bit later, to be fair. But it's why we have those pockets, because they're, they're already becoming established. Yeah? So Scots-Irish are early. English are early, for example. And so here's what's notable, though. So people are coming to a rationalistic understanding of the world, and that's basically going to say that, well, I don't really need to do anything. I don't really need to be involved. It's interesting that universalism, which is always couched in, in today's terms uh, as some kind of uber gospel-centric approach to things, is really just an outgrowth of rationalism. <laughs> it's, it's reason heaped upon an idea of grace. Right. Right. So what you have in in New England are the Puritans and in other parts of the country, say Pennsylvania, Virginia, what will become Kentucky, Tennessee, you've got the Scots-Irish and their Presbyterians. And then in some places you do have European pietistic influence. And these groups begin calling for a revival of religion. The Scots-Irish Presbyterians are very devout as are the New England Puritans. They do take religion very seriously, over and against a large portion of established Christianity. They don't believe that mere church membership makes one a Christian. And so from this comes what what we're going to understand as the old light, new light controversy. And I'm going to use that in a very general term here uh, because it gets used different ways throughout history, but in The 1730s, it's a debate between, say, Congregationalists and Baptists and their churches, and basically the old light people did not like the revivalistic notions that the new lights had. And I believe new light comes from a work by Jonathan Edwards where uh, his his members are having experiences of grace and causing them to have what he calls a new light in their perspective on uh, their sinfulness and on God's work within them. I think it's like a narrative of the surprising work of God is where you're going to find that. And so this leads to conflict between not only the religious bodies, say the congregational church or the Anglican church or the Baptist church, but also the individual congregations. So that we're starting to see for the first time, I mean really for the first time in in American Christianity, a big push for people to leave their church membership and go start new congregations, which isn't the easiest thing to do in England. Right, uh, throughout much of history, but in America you can do that. Nobody's really going to stop you. There are established churches, but it's we're, we're a long way from the Covenanters. Right,
1: right. It's not illegal to be a dissenter at, like it is in England, for example. I mean, correct. I mean, at least by the, at, you know what I mean. You know what I'm trying to say here. So
0: yeah, exactly. Uh, 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 religious freedom. It enables them to do what they want to do. Now, what kind of critiques then would people have of these revivals? Well, we first have to ask: Well, what did they look like? Right, right. Well, it's extemporaneous preaching. It is large open air meetings sometimes, often totally separate from the the church service. And we won't say the Sunday service because there were a lot more daily services in those days. Sure. Whether whether quote unquote high church or low church. Extemporaneous preaching, inclusion of all members of society to a greater degree than what you had, and this insistence upon introspection, a commitment to a new standard of living, and an insistence upon a conversion experience. And basically, the critics of these new lights are going to say, well, they're just enthusiasts. Is that a word you've heard before? (laughs) And that they're leading to factionalism or sectarianism. And there, I think, is probably the best critique that the old lights have against the new lights. And again, we're, old light, new light refers to a congregationalist and Baptist thing happening in the in the around the 1730s. If you look in history books, you're going to see the Church of Scotland have an old light, new light controversy in the 1790s, and then you get Presbyterians in the 1800s who are called old light because they don't want to. Sign on to the U.S. Constitution, for example. <laughs> and, so, and so it gets complicated, but we're talking about the initial old light, new light controversy. So anyway, anyway, I think that that's a fair critique that they're basically saying we're the true Christians, you're not, and then we're going to to separate and form our own bodies in in certain places. So you'll have interesting things happening, like say a George Whitfield will— convert a bunch of congregationalists and he'll say, study the scriptures, study the scriptures to see what's true. And they'll go to the scriptures and say, well, we don't find infant baptism here. And so then they become Baptists. So they're siphoning members away from the congregationalists, from the Presbyterians, from the Anglicans, and they end up growing the nascent Methodist church and in large part, the early American Baptist church. And that's an interesting thing to think about, right? That that these other movements are able to grow in large part due to the dissension sowed unintentionally, perhaps, by the great Revival. I'm
1: assuming we're talking about particular Baptists here. Is that right?
0: Okay. Right, right. The, 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 we, should do a, we need to do a whole episode on the Baptists just, to, just get to get this, get this straight, all straight.
1: Get up the pie yeah, chart. I know what you yeah. mean. Well, the only reason I emphasize that is, again— because of our experience with revivalism, especially revivalism stemming from the Second Great Awakening, as you mentioned earlier, we do have a tendency to view these things in Arminian terms. We we cannot Correct. view this as Arminian preaching, like, you know, you need to make a dis- You know, God has cast the vote for you, and Satan has cast the opposite vote. You know, what are you going to decide here, kind of thing. That's not this kind of preaching.
0: Yeah, and, and as we're, we're talking, this would be a good time, because we're not getting into... The- to the specific, you know, individuals yet because there is one notable armenian you know notable armenian that's John Wesley but the other major figures are by and large calvinists new light calvinists but the difference there is going to be an emphasis for the calvinists on evangelism versus for lack of a better for lack of better words no evangelism right. it is true that some calvinists did not believe in evangelism but I don't think it's quite the way a lot of people want to to believe it was, where they say, well, they just sort of sat there and thought that God would bring the elect to them.
1: Well, for that matter, there were Lutheran Orthodox who believed that the whole world had been evangelized and so they didn't do missions either. So
0: That's right, exactly. So this is not an uncommon <laughs> attitude to have. At the yes, you know, it's, it's at least not unique to to one strain of, you know, Anglicanism right. or something like right. that. Or congregationalism. <laughs> There was this idea, like, say, certain men said that Calvinists were preaching that, well, somebody would just say, walk through a doorway and just like, oh, oh, I've just been saved. Well, I don't know that there's any evidence of anyone actually holding that theological position. Uh, there, there's a lot of unfair critique that that happens uh, around this time. And there's really a lot of mudslinging because we are dealing with celebrity preachers. And and it's really funny. The celebrity preachers, by and large, these days get along Pretty well, right? It's not like the rough and tumble early days of Pentecostalism where guys were like knifing each other and stuff. <laughs> but but if you go back to these days, they were really fighting against each other by name, calling each other out. And in some ways, that's almost more admirable. At least they would say, "I'm talking about this man's teaching," right? Although although the problem is they they are sometimes guilty of slander. Yeah, but anyway. So back to the evangelism question. So what what does this look like then for a revivalistic? Calvinist, who believes that it is God who converts and that salvation is by faith and it belongs, but faith is a gift that's given only from God. Well, they believe in the primacy of the preached word, that the word must be preached sincerely, that it must actually aim to cut people to the quick with the law, but also to soothe them with the gospel. But the gospel is meant only to soothe people who are truly broken by their sin. And that's something that only God can do, but God does it through the preacher. And thus far, we can pretty much agree with that. Sure. The The tricky part comes when you're trying to judge what is a legitimate spiritual experience. And that's what their opponents are saying. And I think the opponents have a point. How can you know that this person is seriously contrite?
1: Would this, would this be the language in terms of Calvinism of effectual calling? I mean, is that language they're using at this time? or?
0: Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, effectual callings in the in the parlance at that at that point. Okay. Um, this idea that yeah, God is going to effectually call through these means, right? And I do think we're probably further removed from the sacramental debates of the Westminster Assembly and things like that. God is going to effectually call through the preached word, and the problem is they are insisting upon a truly emotional kind of reaction that people have to have, and. Uh, on the one hand, they are they are correct, that contrition actually should mean you feel something sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> to say, I a poor, miserable sinner, you should maybe actually perceive you are a poor, miserable sinner. Uh, th- th- they are not really content with this idea, then, that you're just going to remain in sin either. They do believe that once a person is converted, that their life will be amended. And not perfectly although everybody is stricter in those days right? as far as Christianity goes. I mean, if we even went back to the 19th century, Walther would condemn all of us for our lackadaisical <laughs> lives. And so anyway, so a, a Calvinist does believe in a fixed number of the elect, but they believe that the elect will only be brought in through the preached word. And the disagreement then comes with how do we do it? Who do we preach to? What do we do? By stressing this emotional aspect to it, by going outside of the typical church service to these open-air meetings, the old lights thought that the new lights were really giving way to enthusiasm and sectarianism. So that's what's going on in America. Uh, You do have some, like the Welsh revivals uh, with the Methodists happening in England around the same time, and that's where men like Wesley are going to really come up, in the 1730s in England. And Wesley is going to have a, a conversion experience where his heart is Strangely warmed. We'll talk a, bit, a little bit more about that as we go on. And so you're going to see this. All of these men feel a conviction of their sins and then feel a weight lifted when they are confronted with the gospel of salvation through Christ alone. And that initial experience will lead them to preach to others the need for a similar experience. And so that's really the hallmark of the First Great Awakening that religion must be real that it must be something that you can at least feel part of the time. And certainly you need to, um, <laughs> you need to realize that, that you're a true sinner because there's only true forgiveness for true sinners. Now up to this point, we are only discussing it in its context. We haven't talked about, say, a Book of Concord approach to the theology of the First Great Awakening, simply because this is, this is Calvinists fighting Calvinists with some Arminians coming, uh, kind of flanking around the other side. So we're not going to necessarily get into does baptism save just yet, uh, things like that, because that's not really the purpose of the episode. It's a historical overview. Zolan, uh, what more should we say here?
1: Well, I was just going to remark that you, you mentioned how they put an emphasis on preaching, and boy, oh boy, did they ever put an emphasis on preaching! Because men like Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards, all of them preached—you know—thousands of sermons. You know, often multiple times a day multiple times in the week kind of a thing. I mean, preaching really does characterize this whole this whole movement.
0: And a lot of it becomes outdoor preaching, right. which Whitfield was all about. And Wesley is kind of uneasy at first cuz Wesley's a, a lot more, we'll say high church and very proper and he considered it indecent to be preaching outside. Whitfield doesn't care, very American in that way, even though he's British. He has a very American character. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very much about preaching, preaching to large groups, preaching for a long time, but really quite elegant words in a lot of sure. ways, or at least stirring words. And you heard a little bit of them in the beginning from Jonathan Edwards' sermon. Right. Which I'm sure triggered not a few of you, as you heard it. <laughs> yeah, so this is, this is very different, though. We're talking about a very straight-laced, you know, British, Anglo, Scottish society— High church, low church, everybody is very straight-laced at the time. Everybody is really rather reserved. And along come these wild men preaching these fiery sermons that are moving lots of people and causing the perceived conversions of thousands of people. Because up until now, a lot of these people have been told, well, God's out there deism, blah, 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 or you're going to be fine, he's going to save everybody, don't worry about it. And along come men like Whitfield, Edwards, and Wesley and say, no, here's a very real danger. God is alive. God is not far off. He is here even now and he sees your sins and you have transgressed the law of a thrice holy God. What will you do? What is the remedy? You've all been taught by these men that there is no danger, but we're here to tell you there is danger. And we're here to show you the way of salvation. And that sense of urgency really comes across when you read them. I do think that there is something to learn from that, that there is a sense of urgency here. I mean, these men, Wesley accepted, did not believe in the or did believe in the doctrine of election. So that the, the elect would be saved, and yet there is still a sense of urgency. Well, does the Lutheran church not believe in election? And yet sometimes we pretend as if there is no urgency to this message. And, and yet there is. You can rest in the fact that you're preaching faithfully, but there is still a call to preach. And men who reject the gospel still go to hell. So yes, there is an urgency. It's not an urgency, though. Don't get me wrong here. It's not an urgency that would cause us to get people in the church doors by hook or by crook. That's not what I mean at all. But I do mean that the words we preach are important. Because they are the word of God. And they do have power to convict men of their sins, right? Because it is God working through it. So there is an urgency. Anytime people are dying, it's urgent. Anytime people are going to hell, I would consider that an urgent situation. Will we change the number of the elect, Zellin? No. (laughs) No, not at all. Yet, do you know the number of the elect? No. Exactly. Right. (laughs) So, so, yeah, don't don't mistake what we're saying here. Uh, we're, we're simply saying, preach the gospel purely because it is so important, and preach the Word purely because it is so important. Don't change the word because of this sense of urgency because you think people will be lost if we if we don't start cutting chapters out of the Bible or don't put a fog machine in here or, or make our worship look like a queen concert. That's not what we're saying at all. <laughs> we're simply saying we're dying men, preaching to dying men in need of salvation and so of course there is a sense of urgency there knowing that then the question is what do we do with it right well and
1: the same paul who could say now is the day of salvation or now is the favorable time is also the same one who would condemn us for changing that the, the message right that woe to you if you preach a different gospel kind of thing so yes there is this urgency to get the word out But that doesn't mean at any cost. That simply means get moving, basically.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Don't be lazy. Do the task that God has called you to do. And so with that said, I think it's fair to say the new lights and the old lights both are making pretty good points here but history is really going to be dominated by the study of the new lights because they are so influential. So on the other side of the break, we're going to take a look at some of the major players in these great revivals. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, WordFitlySpoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking about the first Great Awakening or the Evangelical Revival. Well, we've talked about the really the broad strokes, some of the theology, how we got to the situation that we're in in the colonies at this time. And so now it's time to talk about some of the key players. And as we talk about something like a Great Awakening or the Great Revival, as it's known in in certain places or the evangelical revival as it's also known particularly in England I want to be clear for the discerning lutheran listener that when we say great we're talking about the scope <laughs> and size of it that's just how <laughs> history re- records it so don't don't get the wrong idea here
1: it's it's kind of like calling the enlightenment the enlightenment we don't do that because we agree with everything it's just what they call it so
0: exactly exactly Now we come to our first major player, and that is Mr. George Whitfield, Englishman, Anglican, founder of Methodism and the Evangelical Movement. That's a lot of hats to wear. He was invited to join the Holy Club by brothers John and Charles Wesley. So their associates all get together, meet for prayer, Bible study, pious discipline, and thus the Methodist Church comes from that. The early Methodists are very strict in their manner of Living, and they are a mix of Calvinists and uh, Arminians. So the West, the Wesley brothers are the poster child children for Arminianism, and and Whitfield's probably the best example of Calvinistic Methodism that we have uh, on the history books. Now the Holy Club is not only Anglicans; there are actually a couple of Moravians in there, and a couple of other kind of weirdos just coming. Out coming out of the woodwork but that's what you get and so the methodists are really going to stress then a very could we say ascetic could we say
1: methodical way of living (laughs) right i mean that's that's of course is the slur against them is that because their methods were of asceticism were so strict that's why they were called methodists Right.
0: right. Well, there's a little song against the holy club. So this is this would actually have been sung, you know, in jest or in derision, actually with an earshot of of Wesley and Whitfield. By rule they eat, by rule they drink, by rule do all things but think. Accuse the priests of loose behavior to get more in the layman's favor. Method alone must guide them all when themselves Methodists they call. They were seen as just enthusiasts pietists, if you will, and and really <laughs> radicals all across the board. Because, again, at this time, you're looking at a very rather lax view of piety among the established church, and then you have these men who take a rather extreme view of it. Now, eventually, Whitfield will become a little bit discouraged with Methodism's disciplines because he says that he began to confuse the way he dressed or what he ate with him actually being saved. He, would, he found that he was beginning to believe that the substance of his salvation was in the patched gown that he wore, or just the few vegetables he ate in a day. And he came to realize that that's not the essence of faith, that that's not the essence of salvation, that salvation cannot be found merely in those things. So he, he does break away a little bit from Methodism. But anyway, so he's born in Great Britain in 1714. He's eventually going to die in Massachusetts, age 55, in 1770, which I actually believe his skull is still in Massachusetts, if you want to go see it, Hmm. Um, you know, make a road trip there. The man preaches, you know, uh, like 15,000 times, something like that. Millions of listeners. He is a celebrity in his day, operates, you know, some charities and other things, he has a difficult life early on. He heads down to Georgia had to build an orphanage, holds a lot of revival meetings. Can you tell we're really hitting this quickly? <laughs> but it's his revival meetings that really cement him as a celebrity. He bumps shoulders with Ben Franklin. It's like, it's like playing a video game or something, <laughs> all the people he bumps into. It almost reads like fan fiction because we're so far removed from seeing celebrities or preachers as celebrities right <laughs> in in a positive way, because he is very popular with with regular Americans. he like Jonathan Edwards, adopt a style of preaching that elicits great emotional response from the audience. but the unique thing about Whitfield is his charisma his and his loud voice, All right, in addition to the fact that he's kind of a dwarf and uh, he's a very small guy and uh, and he and he's cross eyed. <laughs> And yet, he's able to just project this great voice, and he's known for being eloquent of speech and very moving. So that even people who didn't like what he was doing had to admit he's pretty good at this. Right. He he's going to go around the colonies and preach, and thousands of people are going to convert. It was Ben Franklin that com- that computed that in one of his open air sermons, Whitfield preached to over thirty thousand people
1: without without amplification, without you know our our mod our modern technology just in the open air, yeah that's impressive although i I would be remiss to point out a couple of things here real quick about Whitfield so that I can contribute something to this too <laughs> you mentioned the fifteen thousand sermons unfortunately um only a handful of those have been preserved I mean we're talking like what fifty at most, I think mm-hmm. is actually what. I don't because I'm assuming because of his preaching style and the way that he preached, you know, he didn't write a lot of them down and they just weren't preserved after him. So if you really want to get a sample of his preaching, you can do it. But it's it's just a small sample.
0: Yeah. And, and that's I mean, these men didn't really take notes necessarily right. and, and into the pulpit, just depending. And so they would just hold forth um, for a long time, just just preaching predominantly open air at a certain after a certain point.
1: And I would also be remiss when talking about Whitfield, if we didn't mention perhaps the most famous anecdote about Whitfield and his eloquence, that it was once said that he was so eloquent and so moving in his speech that he caused, I mean, how does it go? He caused crowds to weep when he uttered the word Mesopotamia.
0: Yeah, just by his pronunciation of the word Mesopotamia.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I don't know, that's that's impressive in itself. It really is. I mean...
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's just a, a tremendous life. I mean, he imagine it's the 1730s and you're in England and they're like, OK, you're going to go to Georgia and to Savannah and you're going to just be a regular parish priest, a regular parish priest. And one of the first things he does early on is to uh, open an orphanage, which is the Bethesda Orphanage, which actually still exists to this day as like Bethesda Academy. So I think, I, if I'm not mistaken, Bethesda Academy is the oldest charity in North America. Well, there you go. So if you're watching Jeopardy! and this comes up, you can think word fitly spoke. <laughs> <laughs> so he does go around, and very influential, maybe the earliest example of, an, of a true American uh, celebrity. Itinerant preacher, evangelist, and... The problem though with him is that he he doesn't really settle as a parish priest very long. He always has to be moving. And you don't see that as much with Edwards as you do with Whitfield. And that's kind of one of the criticisms people have of Whitfield is that he just kind of went around doing his own thing. And so that other clergy were not fans of his. He even butts heads with Wesley although they do reconcile. Again though you're seeing something interesting here. They butt heads, but they don't really break fellowship. There's a kind of a difference in the Anglican church that way. Right. They might part ways for a while, but they still remain, for lack of a better term, in fellowship with one another. So they do butt heads. The big the big reason is that the Wesleys are Arminian and George Whitfield is decidedly not. He is he is a Calvinistic Methodist, which is a thing, or it used to be. If there are any <laughs> Calvinists, Nick Methodist today, please reach out to us. I don't. I've never. I've never actually met one in the wild. <laughs> if any, if anyone knows, uh, I mean, maybe somewhere in Wales. I don't know. I don't know. But well, anyway, it's,
1: it's kind of like trying to find particular or Calvinistic Baptists nowadays. They exist, but boy, they're becoming harder to find. So
0: they're becoming harder and harder to find. But that you know that puts us up in the second Great Awakening again, right? But, I know, but still, uh, yeah. But no, no, you're, you're right. You're right. So that's that's a very quick overview of of George Whitfield. He travels to America a few times and eventually dies into, in, in America. And I believe that he makes a total of seven trips to America before he dies in New England. And he travels around other places too, like Gibraltar. There's a place we don't mention enough of, <laughs> and you know, like Ireland and places like that. But he's most notable for his journeys to America and to Georgia and. And I do think that that's a, a remarkable thing. Sometimes we think of the First Great Awakening as being a New England phenomenon only. Right. And, and it's not the case. And there was a very strong attempt to evangelize in the South of the United, almost in South America, in the southern in the Southern colonies at that time. And I think that's a tremendous thing because – even early in those days, you still had a division between North and South, with with a perceived, you know, it, we don't need to get into that debate, right? Yeah, right. We'll get there. Right. But it it is interesting, and I almost wish today we had quite the heart uh, for the evangelization of the South that we did in those days.
1: That longing for your homeland, though.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, why can't we plant more Lutheran churches down that way? I, and I'm not denigrating the church planters that we have. It's just that. I think it would be a tremendous thing to see more missouri Synod congregations with kind of a zeal for this sort of thing. At least a zeal to go out, to go and plant, to go and uh, convert. Or let me put it this way: to go and preach the word that it may bear fruit in these places where, to this day, we still just don't have a lot of of congregations. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And <laughs> you know, and and we come to this to this a lot. I, was there a lot of glamour in going to Georgia? in the 1730s there might have been it might have been like oh he gets to go to savannah
1: georgia well correct me if i'm wrong on this willie though wasn't georgia considered to be kind of almost i mean
0: i want to say criminal any anywhere you have you know water right you're gonna have pirates right? well i mean but there there was
1: always this sense of it being kind of rougher in general
0: it was yeah it was known as being it was known as being rougher and you know i'm probably being a bit unfair in the way i'm approaching this because i think it's analogous to today say this focus that a lot of denominations have upon only urban missions right. because the perceived grittiness of urban missions is seen as as more necessary and i think that that can be a little bit dangerous too i i absolutely agree the urbanite needs the gospel and yet a huge chunk, perhaps the greatest chunk of, say, opioid abuse, drug overdose deaths, and other things are found in rural America right. right now, where we largely don't have outreaches, where we largely aren't going and planting churches because, frankly, it just it's not as exciting to a lot of people. And unfortunately, that's where we find ourselves. It's easier to fund certain things because people kind of get more excited about other things. It's a lot harder to sell a mission to you know, some random county in East Tennessee. And I think you had that in those days, though, with George Whitfield, He could go to England and raise the funds because of the reputation that Georgia had. This is a rough backwater place. It's dangerous. There are a lot of orphans. Please help me build this orphanage. And people would see that sure. need. Now, that's yeah. not, again, I'm not trying to come down on urban work at all. I'm simply saying that, you know, it'd be not, it would just be nice to see some places we haven't been in in two hundred years to maybe go check them out and see how they're doing
1: well and i think I think that's a fair point too, because when we're talking about you know this this attractiveness of certain kinds of churches or the attractiveness of certain kinds of missions over others, that was also something happening in in Whitfield's day too, because you know that noble landed kind of clergy. Very often looked down on the more rural parishes because you know they wanted to preach in London or they wanted to preach in you know the big cities to get that juicy benefits so that they'd be able to have a, a good you know wealthy kind of living so for Whitfield to do this to go to a an area of the world which was known for its grittiness for its poverty, I think is is something that we can say in his favor I really do
0: yeah certainly, and again, I'm not trying to come down on what the mission work looks like today at all because it might just be this is the season that we're in. It's just simply to say let's try some let's try some places where we don't have churches every three blocks. I don't know <laughs> let's give it a shot, but the truth is the gospel is needed everywhere, and so church planners, evangelists, where you are, word fitly spoke is not trying to take that away from the work that you do. The gospel is needed is needed everywhere. And so we thank you for those who are willing to go out and and to do that. Since I, well, since I get a feeling that we're not really going to
1: get on to Edwards in this podcast.
0: Well, we can, but go on, yeah. Well, I
1: mean, just to kind of continue with some of these themes, though, I think Whitfield's drive, even if he was going about kind of everywhere, and maybe he should have stuck to one place. I mean, we we can't lay that judgment upon him because this is just what happened. That's it's just the facts ma'am as it were mm-hmm. yeah um sure. but at the same time i think there is something to be said for his zeal i mean a man who is willing to preach 15,000 times that we know of is i mean is a man who is deeply concerned about you know souls do we have that same kind of zeal do we have that same kind of drive or are we just content with our 50 odd sermons a year
0: right and you know a lot of preaching in our context, it's going to happen at the hospital bed right, or an in individual meeting with members. right. And the frustrating thing for a lot of us is that we're not going to see 30,000 people show up to hear us preach. And in a lifetime of ministry, the number of people you've seen come to the faith may well be small in the world's eyes. And we're always tempted to look at men like Whitfield Okay, and not be inspired by the zeal, but be inspired by the numbers, and there's the danger. I won't say the glamour, because I don't know that traveling the 13 colonies in the 1740s was glamorous, <laughs> but, but yeah, absolutely. Are, are we zealous enough to go after this kind of thing? And again, it is for the sake of people, and we want to we make that very clear. It's not dogma's sake alone. This is something we go back to time and time again here, that our dogma, which is true, is meant to serve the gospel, right? It's meant to serve the people, that they would know the things of God, that they would know the Word of God and remain in it. That's the point of of doctrinal pronouncements, that they keep us safe and within the faith. So we always have to have an eye toward humanity and towards those that we're called to minister to. Zellin, would you like to say some more about that? Well, and
1: I'm kind of debating whether to bring this out, but I think it, it actually makes a good point. Something that uh, Zinzendorf himself, a Moravian, once said. And please don't misunderstand me when I'm quoting Zinzendorf positively here. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not advocating for Moravianism by any stretch of the imagination. But what something that he said was is that you should preach the gospel and die forgotten. And I think that's a very, <laughs> very beautiful way of putting this. That we should be so zealous in our preaching that we are seeking the the, the care of souls. We are seeking that those bad sides. We are seeking those souls for whom Christ died. But we're not doing it for our own personal glory. Because I'm sure any of us would you know, love, in a fleshly way, to preach before 30,000. But that's not why we're here.
0: Absolutely. Should not every preacher of the gospel, should not every Lutheran pastor echo the words of John the Baptist saying, he must increase, I must decrease? Absolutely. And and with regard to that, we can become so obsessed, even us with, like, especially us in the podcast industry, if we want to call it that. I think everybody has a podcast. It's like having a cell phone nowadays, so I guess we're not that special. That's okay. But... <laughs> this, this idea that we want to make a brand for ourselves. So you get proper name dot ministry or something like that, or this constant putting your face on everything, your face, your face, your face, all of this. It's not healthy. It's it's not healthy um, to only go after the clicks and the likes and the attention and the dopamine rushes. It needs to be more than that. If we're doing this, if we're doing this kind of, of, thing or any kind of ministerial work. It should be to the glory of God for the sake of the gospel and that alone, not for our own ambition and not for our own reputation and not for our own attention. That is vanity and that will rust away and and moth will destroy it, right? right? We have to be as ministers and really as all Christians always magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ and minimizing ourselves, our would-be celebrity, our would-be advantage, because you, it may well lead to earthly advantage here, but I'm not so sure it pays off well in the life to come. Zellin, any any final words here? We got a, a couple minutes left.
1: I think what you're saying, Willie, is is we're going to start selling merchandise with your face on it. Is that what's that what you're getting at? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Tune in next episode to find out how you can buy a blessed handkerchief with my mug on it <laughs> or a beach towel with Zellin. Oh boy. It's going to be great. We're going to make money. <laughs> we're going to have the Adam Kuntz pen collection, the Aaron Uphoff disposable needle and the David Apple breakfast cereal. It's going to be great. Trust me. It's going to be gold. <laughs>
1: Cause we're going to turn this into a money-making machine. no,
0: Right, exactly <laughs>
1: no I think, I think your point is well made though that you know this should all be done to the glory of God and when we say that we don't mean that as just a trite empty phrase but d- done in such a way that we are building up rather you know building up others in their souls rather than building up ourselves and that's a fine line to walk but it needs to be done
0: Amen. And, right and we always need to be praying to be preserved from such folly And so with that, too, all of this discussion about the First Great Awakening, remember, we are Lutherans, and we claim to have the true biblical doctrine. So, all the more, we should be better informed, even better prepared to go out and to face the world with the true Word of God, with the true gospel, emboldening us to go out and preach without fear of men and gimmicks and and any other temporal thing like that. Amen. Well, all right, that's going to wrap things up. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken If you want to know more, and we know you do about John Wesley, so tune in. We'll probably do a whole episode just about him, the cautions, the things to take away from it. But if you want to know more about other things for the time being, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. What peace can you have when God is your enemy, when the wrath of God is abiding upon your poor soul? Awake, then, you that are sleeping in a false peace. Awake, ye carnal professors, ye hypocrites that go to church, receive the sacrament, read your Bibles and never felt the power of God upon your hearts. You that are formal professors, you that are baptized heathens, awake, awake, and do not rest on a false bottom. Blame me not for addressing myself to you. Indeed, it is out of love to your souls. I see you are lingering in your Sodom and wanting to stay there, but I come to you as the angel did to Lot to take you by the hand. Come away, my dear brethren. Fly, fly, fly for your lives to Jesus Christ. Fly to a bleeding God. Fly, to a throne of grace, and beg of God to break your hearts. Beg of God to convince you of your actual sins. Beg of God to convince you of your original sin. Beg of God to convince you of your self-righteousness. Beg of God to give you faith and to enable you to close with Jesus Christ. George Whitfield, The Method of Grace.